All right, so this week's podcast will require a little bit of an introduction because it turns out that it was fairly controversial in some circles anyway, and many of you will not be familiar with my guests. So basically, when everything kicked off with my university, I received a very kind email from someone named Nina Power. Nina Power is an academic in the UK. She's a theorist and a philosopher more generally. She's widely respected. She's written a few widely and well-received books. And she's always written in the traditions of the radical left. That was how I first learned about her in the radical left milieus. Only recently did she have her own kind of difficult experiences being somewhat disowned by certain segments of the radical left in the UK. And so while she's still widely read and admired by many people in certain circles, she is now somewhat anathema. But of course, someone being disowned by the radical left hardly means anything to me as a signal of their character or quality. And so, of course, my intuition was that Nina is probably really smart and interesting and honest and probably just got into trouble for something relatively harmless. So, of course, we were flattered by the invitation and I was just curious to learn what she really thinks because the truth is I didn't really know. I still hardly know. People who think interesting thoughts and who think seriously, they're complicated. It takes a while to figure out what someone even really thinks. So I was eager to come meet her and learn more about her story and get to the bottom of what she actually thinks about things. And so when we got here, it was a Thursday and I'm committed to doing a live stream on Thursday night every week. And when I got here, she was with DC Miller, who is also a writer and a controversial person who had his own experiences being outcast and excommunicated by polite society. In that case, it was largely because of his role in protesting the LD50 shutdown. This is something that we talk about in the live stream, so I'm not going to review that event here. Just suffice it to say that I also didn't really know much about what DC really thinks or believes. And unlike many people, I figure out what I think about people by asking them simply and straightforwardly questions about what they think and really trying to listen and get to the bottom of what people really think and feel because you really can't trust anything you see or hear about people. So when I said I was going to do my live stream, they were both curious and keen to participate. So I just told them to join me. And so totally unplanned. They just sat down to the, to do the live stream with me. So what follows is the audio from that live stream. We talked about a lot of different things. It was a fairly free floating conversation. We talked about feminism. We talked about hate speech and what it means to be accused of hate speech. We talked about paganism. Apparently Nina and DC both share an interest in paganism. And we kind of discussed that in relation to Christianity, some other interesting things. So yeah, I don't think we actually said or did anything particularly controversial, but apparently in leftist circles, there was some gossiping, let's just call it. It would be totally not worth mentioning if it wasn't particularly hilarious. There was one person who seems to have genuinely believed that Nina and DC were throwing up uh, fascist like gang signs supposedly the symbol associated with a far-right group in Turkey. <laughs> of course, that's utterly implausible, nonsensical, paranoiac interpretation, but it's pretty amusing. 
I wonder what it feels like to be one of these paranoid leftists today, right now, who talk shit about people in private Facebook communities, but nobody really cares about them. Nobody really listens anymore. And their denunciations have less and less effect every passing month. While I can write whatever I want and record whatever conversations I want, make videos and audio exactly as I please, and no amount of denunciations can stop it. And a good number of people listen to this stuff and read my stuff. Man, that's got to suck if you're one of the haters. It must make people so frustrated. Anyway, there's your introduction for the podcast this week. I've also recorded a few other conversations and even some video clips messing around with Nina and her interesting little circle here in London. So stay tuned for that stuff coming up over the next week or two. As always, huge thanks to all the financial supporters of my work and patrons of the podcast. If you'd like to talk more about this sort of stuff with people that are interested, you're f perfectly free to join my Discord server. All you have to do is uh, let me know, get in touch with me privately somehow, and I'll hook you up with an invite. Just a little bit of a process to filter out the wrong type of person. You know, trolls really. All right then, that's all by way of introduction. Now on with it. Folks, as always, the Thursday night session is mostly a kind of Q&A, so uh, we don't have any particular agenda. We are happy to talk about anything you folks want to talk about. So if you have any questions, comments at all, we're you know paying close attention to the chat. Yes, we are live in London. That's right. Um, uh, what I'm going to do briefly is introduce our guests, and uh, that'll give you some sense of uh, you know the human material we're working with here tonight. And that will allow you to uh, develop some questions and comments appropriately to give us something interesting to chew on. Can I put this there? Is that cool? Yeah, sure. So, uh, right, so on my left here, it's probably your right, I guess, is Nina Power, an academic feminist theorist, I think. I think she still identifies with that. She can kind of explain her own labels if she, if she wants to, but I'll do my best to kind of uh, do it myself. Uh, Nina is well known, I would say, in kind of the radical left circles and in, in the Anglo world and perhaps beyond. Uh, her book, One Dimensional Woman, I think in particular was very widely read and a lot of people know her and, and respect her for that and for that book. So she's been very active for a long time in, in the radical left, in academia and in activist circles and uh, in the radical left and widely respected. Uh, and yet recently she's been in some hot water for you know reasons that I think by now everyone can kind of predict when you hear some you know interesting radical left person getting into some kind of trouble. Uh, you can usually predict why it's because of some sort of deviation on some you know relatively uncontroversial uh, fact of reality. So Nina can go into that whatever whatever amount of detail she wants to, but basically it was kind of around the trans issues. So uh, you know I think Nina's bona fides uh, on the radical left and, and a kind of you know very passionate. Uh, feminist uh, it's kind of unquestionable uh, i think she's she's well known for for being a a, a very committed feminist uh and yet you know no amount of you know um hard work and commitment to the to the cause of liberation is enough to convince people that uh one is not a trans hating uh evil person so unfortunately nina has fallen victim to uh some conflicts around that uh common problem today and uh so yeah it, if you have any questions around that, uh, I think Nina would have a lot of uh, observations and experiences that she might be able to share if you're interested in kind of the academia and the politics around that and the politics and activist left wing circles. Uh, or, you know, maybe you're just interested in what like a non kind of like politically correct uh, radical feminist sounds like and thinks like. So anything 
related to that, I think uh, it's fair game for Nina. She'd be happy to talk about anything like that. It says move the camera a little to the left. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think probably more like, yeah, there we go. And so, yeah, that's Nina Power on my one side. And then on my other side, we have DC Miller. And DC Miller is a writer in his own right. And he's most well known, I think, for his involvement in the in opposing the uh, shutdown LD50 controversy. And I don't know how many of you have heard that. Most of my audience, I think, is in the U.S. Some of you are in the U.K., I know. But basically, the LD50 controversy happened about, was that a year ago? More than a year ago? Two years years ago. ago. Yeah, time flies. Basically, make a long story short, an art gallery in London was going to have Nick Land speak uh, among a few other people, I think, and an Antifa kind of came for them. There's a big kind of controversy and there's this big campaign to quote unquote shut down LD50. Basically no no platform, Nick Land at, at the art gallery called LD50. That's my kind of short and sweet summary of it. And uh, DC Miller was one of the people who was involved in saying this is ridiculous and you know, basically opposing uh, the opposition to LD50. <laughs> is that fair to Yeah, yeah. Say? Yeah. Uh, no. It was it was the uh, Goldsmith MFA and Antifa which came came after. That's right, Goldsmiths and Antifa the, the Goldsmiths Antifa union we might say mm-hmm. so uh yeah so um that's that's who we're hanging out with tonight i'm actually uh staying with can i say that yeah of course. okay you look a little alarmed uh, <laughs> uh th- these fine people are nice enough to uh, host me and put me up in my exile as i it's my fat. oh i know but i'm trying to not <laughs> give like details you know i'm trying to be like mysterious or whatever i know it's your i know it's your flat <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we are going to talk about maybe the politics of witch hunting a little bit, or, or the concept of the witch hunt. Dude, have patience. We're getting there. All right. I'm, I'm introducing. <laughs> you got to ease ease them in. Uh, I got to let them know who you are so that they know what kinds of questions they can ask you. Well, they can ask any questions they want. That's right. You can ask any questions you want, them. and we don't have to answer them. That's true. Unless they give us money, in which case we have to answer them. No, we don't have to do anything just now. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So anyway. Oh, okay, speak up. We need to project because we're not close enough to this, but it's fine. So yeah, that's basically okay. That's enough. Uh, DC Miller's getting impatient with my long introduction, which is fair <laughs> enough. I am I am uh, too verbose. I admit it. I always have been, but I think that's enough. We've covered all the bases, and I've probably made you feel both of you awkward enough uh, by describing you in ways that you probably don't identify with or feel comfortable with. But that's okay. You can uh, explain I'm things against for yourself. That identification discourse you know same same but i gotta give the crowd something because they don't know who we are you know so all right now we can talk about whatever we want so uh, this man wants to well this person um this this being there you go once once i mean ask me what about a plight to broken skin what is a plight to broken skin it's a song i do with nishiki oh oh you oh you make music too I well, I did the lyrics you. to the song. Oh, okay. I should have introduced you as a musician then, or well, a, a I'm lyricist. Not a musician. Well, I mean. <laughs> so, um, no, let's go. Cool. So, um, yeah, so. I mean, everyone becomes known for some, so, you know, something that has almost nothing. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, so now we can go and ignore them if we want and just talk amongst ourselves, or we can kind of periodically look to see if they have anything to ask us is there a link to read about the ld50 shutdown yeah look for just the, google it look for, look for the, the the true story of ld50 and you'll you'll find a medium post i think you met a nomad um I'll look to all of <laughs> there my you friends go there you go from the castle yeah right okay cool so if you have any questions let us know we'll be checking the chat otherwise we're gonna just talk amongst ourselves so 
What do you guys? What do you guys think? Well, I'd like to ask Nina whether she um, she she does indeed consider herself a, a feminist, as you as you claimed repeatedly on her behalf, which I must say was was not very feminist of you, Justin. And you. Oh. <laughs> Um, yes, actually, I would say that I, I mean, not the feminism of today. I think there are a lot of insights in second wave feminism, particularly around the kind of oppressive nature of gender as a kind of social imposition um, that affects boys and girls and men and women in terms of expectations around, you know, how people are supposed to uh, behave and perform. You know, I, I still accept this uh, description of, of gender um, and in a sense, uh, I want to abolish gender. I want everyone to be as free as possible and free to express themselves in, in whatever way. And, and I think, you know, the most interesting feminist work for me was uh, from this period. Like, so really the kind of, mm, I mean, very late 60s, but early 70s, early to mid 70s. I think, you know, there is truly some astonishing thought going on there. Um, you know, regarding the relationship between like biology and history, um, the future of relationships between men and women, sexual experimentation, um, all of these kinds of questions. So in that sense, I have an allegiance to, yeah, to some of second wave feminist thought, but not to any of what is called feminism uh, today. I mean, To me, the best was yeah. consciousness raising. That was, that was like the one nugget of second wave feminism that I think was the most legit and, and useful and, and important. Consciousness raising of, of what, though, Justin? Uh, well, to me, the basic insight of consciousness raising and that whole kind of motif in feminism is that uh, on a daily basis, we all go through lives lying to each other and, and to ourselves. And there's this order of lies that we all kind of just participate in on a daily basis. And yet we actually have it within our abilities to get together into groups and actually tell the truth about how we feel, about what the way we actually experience things. And when a group of people gets together and they do that really radically, like really try to be as radically honest as possible, uh, a completely different type of world uh, becomes possible and actually begins to get created concretely. I think that's like a really genuine and, and revolutionary uh, insight that that the, the 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 feminists really were kind of the leaders on on, on really kind of show, showing how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those groups obviously were about um, recognizing shared situations, you know. So like you have kind of massive social atomization, you know, a kind of rather oppressive nuclear family structure, often you know, post-war, the kind of the attempt to re-domesticate women who'd sort of been in the workplace. Uh, yeah, and then you have women sort of getting together and saying like, oh, this thing is upsetting me or I can't express myself in this way. Um, yeah. And do, you, do you dislike feminism? Or well, would you I put mean, it, how do you I come mean, down on it? Well, I don't know what it even is. I mean, right. it's like a term people use, obviously, in order to describe themselves or, or to describe other people. But you seemed upset with my affirmation of consciousness raising. Well, I mean, you know, that's another question one could raise about, you know, what exactly you mean by that. I mean, right. know, consciousness raising, I mean, you know, I don't know, like the concept of consciousness, can it, can it be raised? Can it be lowered? You know, whose consciousness are we talking about, actually? Well, how about this? I'm curious, in just in normal life today, if someone asks you if you're a feminist, do you, what do you say to that question? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. But I mean, also, like, you know, when someone asks that kind of question, I mean, what they're asking you is, in a way, also, yeah. you know, like, do you sort of subscribe in a way to this kind of, well, like, this, this kind of way of describing yourself, you know? And it's like, do you, in a sense, assent to the 
idea that you know feminism is a, is a great thing and we right, should all right. be feminists and men and this is like what a feminist looks like you know yeah yeah, yeah. Kind of thing, you know? yeah definitely i definitely appreciate that these questions nowadays are totally loaded questions and you have the right instinct to say well what do you mean by that and not uh, not taking the bait on these kinds of uh labels so i get that definitely mm-hmm. i was just curious um where you actually come down on it so oh you can go on it on a, on a candidate if you want but there's a question there if we want to yeah. get to that in a minute what good has come of women uh, women being in the workplace yeah i mean that's a very very um it's a good question <laughs> yeah i mean i've written a lot about this and um you know my position is fundamentally an anti-work position it's a kind of anti-state and anti-capitalist position in a certain way and so um i'm not a liberal feminist in the sense that i think that women's mass inclusion into the workplace um was a good thing um it's certainly uh gave some women some economic independence. Um, but um, I think that kind of relation to the wage, um, you know, you go, you move from a family wage position to like the, the necessity for like a dual income in most families. Um, so the wage is in fact lowered by mass, uh, women's mass entry into the workplace. Um, you know, I'm a kind of, uh, I suppose a sort of, uh, yeah, psychedelic uh, freedom loving, uh, <laughs> person and I, I don't like the idea of anyone being shackled to some sort of mind-numbing mindless uh, job and this would include men and women uh, I think there's much more like interesting things uh, we could do um, you know so uh, no I don't think uh, that like women being in the workplace is a good thing of course that doesn't necessarily mean that I think you know uh, the nuclear family is also a good thing either uh, which <laughs> might be <laughs> yeah uh, which might be you know, uh, I mean, how do you I... describe good thing, good thing, bad thing? I mean, yeah. some things. I mean, it's obvious how feminism came about and why it was supported by by the forces that supported it. It was precisely the lower wages. You know, it was precisely to um, you know, as as part of a, a you know major uh, capitalist and you know, state sponsored political push into um, you know zones that would then enable. Uh, forms of power outside of the nuclear family actually to reassert themselves much more violently. I mean, this is something that actually Bono talks about quite well, I think, in Minimum Moralia, when he talks about how, you know, one opposes the bourgeois family before realizing actually that it's uh, a defense mechanism against far worse forces. And I think feminism has, in a way, um, revealed that. Yeah, I have to say, I'm yeah, not, against, I'm not against families. My point is not about the destruction of families at all. You know, simply to say that the nuclear family is tied to a particular model of work, which means that actually people, you know, suffer terribly from isolation. You know, the demand to both do wage labour and to look after a child. You know, there are there are far um, more, um, I don't know, diverse ways, you know, and historically as well, like you'd have far more people looking after a child in an average day, you know, and, and this kind of thing. And it's much more playful and much more fun and the child has a nicer time. You know, it's not so good to be isolated in that way to, you know, to be alone so much, for example. So we got a question from Rob Walker. That right there means that he gave us four pounds oh, wow. to answer this question. Thank you, Rob. Very generous. I'm going to duly split that among my co-guests here so we won't spend it all in one place don't worry and his question is (laughs) what are you against money (laughs) oh excellent you can come on my live stream anytime then what are your views on men's rights should we be acknowledging the lived experiences of men yes 
well, funnily, you should funny you should ask that. Rob, I'm writing a book about men at the moment, um, which is a very pro pro men book, and um, I want to add actually that my feminism is is precisely not uh, about women being victims, which is much of the the dominant discourse today, especially around Me Too and so on, I think that, you know, women have a, a, a you know, immense amounts of strength and different strength from uh, men. And I, I'm really, I really, really object to the idea that women are somehow uh, socially or politically or economically or fundamentally the victims of men or the victims of so-called patriarchy. Um, I think that men uh, do suffer uh, terribly, like male suicide rates, for example, are extremely high. Men, Male death rates in particular jobs are very high. It's men who are sent to war um, to die you know and in a sense we can see societies actually being really anti-men um, in many many ways and uh, I, I love men you know <laughs> I, I uh, you know I, some of my best friends are men and um, so I, I want to actually yeah very much move away from the all of this discourse around toxic masculinity so-called which very easily slides into the idea that all masculinity is toxic I think uh, absolutely not I think there are ways of being a good man and, and many men are indeed good men um, and yeah that they should be respected and celebrated um, for this want to take that one too you're on a roll Oh, wait. I'll read it. Sorry, I can't A read question it. for Nina. What is your opinion on the idea of the communal family, wherein the family is more associated perhaps to the household mm -hmm. with children raised by a large number of family members? Um. <laughs> signal. Is it the. Which signal? The, the wolf signal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I. I this one. The communal household. Yeah. What is that? Um, Are you making gang signs on my live stream? <laughs> Am I gonna go to jail? Oh, what are you doing? Things are getting very. very are you gonna knife me now? <laughs> no. Can we have a look at the video? Does oh yeah, you want to see the video? No, no, we, no, no. What's I, the question? Sorry, it's getting confusing. That is what we look like. Um, <laughs> Metanomad has a question for me. Like Nina has obviously many, many questions. Many, many people ask Nina for answers. Question for DC. Look at that, Metanomad. Thank you. Can you see it? Would you like me? I'll read it. Would you recommend that the average person attempts to cross the abyss at some point? What is, uh -huh. what is crossing the abyss? Is you know it a nature means? thing? No, it's like, um, I mean, in fact, it, this relates, I would say, back to your to your question about, about consciousness raising. You know, I mean, in fact, one could say like, that it is possible for one to be more conscious or less conscious. Um, I suppose, in, in principle, it's possible for anybody to be more or less conscious. I think um, how one acquires a more considered view of where you are at in the world is another question. I mean, one also has to go through quite intense and difficult experiences. I mean, as, as you yourself, Justin, know, I mean, you've been through this, you know, mm -hmm. this, this kind of like... Um, Gate of the crowd, as, as we call so it. So is that what he means by cross the abyss? Well, I think this is something to do with, uh, it's to do with initiatic experiences, you know, and there's a kind of um, idea in, in initiation mm -hmm. and, and discourses related to initiation and based on the same principle that there's this moment where one has to indeed leave behind uh, something and, and then, mm -hmm. and then find something else, another self even, like across a certain oh, yes. landscape, yes. which is a dangerous landscape. 
So, um, right. So I can, I can, I can, I can speak to that for a little bit because what I didn't tell you folks is that I'm actually in London for, to give a talk tomorrow that uh, I was kindly invited to by Nina and DC. And, uh, the talk I'm going to give tomorrow is about honesty. And from a somewhat more philosophical perspective, it's one of the major, I want to talk about one of the major ideas behind everything that I've been doing that I really haven't had an opportunity yet to articulate. And it basically speaks to, to your question. So, I was actually, you know, I've been preparing my notes for, for my talk, so I can speak to it. Um, you know, f the late lectures of Foucault are basically all about how basically free speech, what we would call free speech, he doesn't use that word, but what we would call free speech, what the Greeks, what gets transliterated from the Greek as Parisia, yeah. basically, um, was this like really radical and explicitly kind of political concept of free speech. And uh, there was a there was a, a philosophical culture around it, and there was a kind of a somewhat political understanding of this concept of free speech. And in, and in fact, uh, Parisia involved a, a certain set of particular kind of criteria that made a particular speech act function as what is called Parisia. Parisia, what it really means, you know, it's it translates somewhat to what we would call free speech. But what it really what it really means is saying it all or saying everything translates, you know, like many Greek words, you can translate it in a few different ways, but it has this connotation of saying, saying everything. So, um, but in, in particular that precisely that, which you're not, so, you know, the little, all the little details, all the little inappropriate details, but in, in any event, uh, the, the way this connects to your question, DC, is that one of the things that Foucault highlights in, in the way that Parisia was conducted and what makes it work or not work is that one of the things that has to be, is it has to be costly. It has to incur a cost for the speaker. The speaker has to, um, suffer something from it. And it's, it's that suffering that is what, uh, kind of pushes them to the other side in some sense. Mm -hmm. It's what makes their acts function in a, in a way that's, uh, transformative of the, you know, the, the larger society in which the, in the, the, you know, the actor or the speaker is embedded. And, uh, yeah, so there is a certain concept of honesty in which if you practice it, uh, sufficiently to with a sufficient intensity and you pay the price for it, uh, then you do, you cross an abyss of, of some kind. You you become, um, you know, disowned or uh, persona non grata. You become, in some sense, outcast. And yet, it's precisely that being outcast that uh, makes this speech act true, and, and and effective, and politically significant. And I would even argue, I, the larger claim I want to make uh, over you know the next few months is that this is actually one of the best specific mechanisms or mo empirical models we have for what revolutionary politics could mean. Like an actual type of human activity that, that has uh, reproducible and predictable effects on the, the social fabric at large in a way that individuals actually have access to. It's just radical honesty, saying it all in, in a way that to a degree that is unreasonable or, in, or inappropriate. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Sure. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, meta, like, I think probably the answer is no. In, in we probably didn't answer his question at all. <laughs> Um, I think it's a question of whether one is 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 prepared to take certain risks, right? And to to you know, is driven to uh, see what is on the other side. Mm. I think also um, the motivations for doing so are important. I mean, why why cross the abyss? For what for what purpose? I mean, I think there are certain people who driven to do so i think also we you know we live in a time in which it's uh very anarchic to even kind of think in that way somehow i mean you have a situation you know i think you also experience this at warwick to some degree and the kind of uncontrolled and anarchic experiments that people engage in in philosophy with respect to philosophy with drugs you know and other things and 
Um, you know, what can one get out of those experiences? Well, one could get a lot out of them, but one can also destroy oneself in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, the reason I don't have power poses is because we're uh, huddled over the microphone to be audible to you all. And I have broad shoulders. If I, if I like really set up straight, I'd be like brushing into them. So, you know, uh, we don't mind. Drama Mineralis <laughs> wants to ask you what the origin is of the subordination of women. There you go. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it depends what you mean by subordination. I mean, obviously, there's a kind of question about uh, women as property, which emerges at a certain point in relation to uh, ensuring, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, who gets what property and uh, whether it's the first son mm. and whether your your wife or the, uh, the bearer of your child is, in a sense, belongs to you. Uh, and obviously... Uh, there is a kind of biological aspect to that in the sense that you can always ensure <laughs> that the mother is the mother, but you can't always know if the father is the father. Um, and I, I mean, I would say, in a sense, the question of the different powers and qualities of men and women doesn't always mean that one is subordinated um, to the other. It might just be that that uh, there are kind of uh, crucial differences. And I, I suppose, again, I'm not uh, a kind of equality feminist in that sense that I think uh, that the that we should just ignore all differences um, physically and socially between men and women um, at the same time as I would want there to be the maximum amount of freedom uh, for everyone uh, so well I mean not for everybody I mean <laughs> no? what do you mean well I mean you know there's like um, you, you want like freedom to do you know Good things, right? You don't want you don't want like uh, lunatics like rampaging through the streets. Like, <laughs> do you? Maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> um, lunatics, what sort of uh, women obsessed like, with the moon? Or? No, no. Well, in, you know, no. I'm thinking more like you know rampaging, you know, madmen like howling. Like no, werewolves. but okay. I mean, you know. Well, that's a, I like werewolves, but oh. um. <laughs> Yeah, let's just say, I mean, yeah, but these are social communal questions. And I think one of the things that we have obviously lost in a certain way is that are those kind of collective decisions where, you know, people used to know who was a dangerous person, how you would deal with them, that it would be a community based kind of decision in a certain way. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, with the kind of anonymity of the city and the, you know, of law and mm. so on, you have this kind of uh, equality of zeros in a certain way. Do you affirm the empirical finding of uh, psychological differences between the sexes? Um, what, which psychological differences? Let's say average, you just average values on like some of the big five traits that literature do you affirm that, or do you, do you find that objectionable? Which big five traits? I'm not um, in your field. Like, so, okay, so I'm more of like a. I think I think one of the poetry. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I guess <laughs> I think one of the more robust and replicated findings is for instance on trade agreeableness for uh, instance uh women are on average more agreeable oh than, really than men. right so you, you don't you don't object to that uh, empirical literature no i think i think absolutely and, and girls and women are absolutely rewarded for being agreeable um yeah i mean your whole life if you're a nice girl you know you get rewards right but it but I, the idea is that it would mostly be uh, probably genetic or heritable um yeah i don't know i guess i'm not so interested in that that question of um at that that level sure. i mean i suppose i'm interested in how it plays out socially and culturally um yeah i mean obviously i mean women tend to be physically weaker it's you know it wouldn't really make much sense for women to be kind of you know uh aggressive and unpleasant if that would then involve them being mm. physically hurt mm. i suppose 
I mean, there's now, there's like somehow there's a feminist argument now that women should be more unpleasant, which is, I think, an interesting, I mean, there's a question yeah. of causality, I suppose, which comes into play there. Sure, and in a sense, my, my model of freedom would also allow for that. I mean, I, you know, I don't think the women, I don't know, should feel compelled. I mean, it's, it's all about compulsion, isn't it? It's like, if you think that the only way you can get through is by behaving in a particular way, and that this is an unfreedom, you know, in a certain way, so... Yeah. I think it's, it's difficult point. to construct a position based on the maximization of freedom as alone for, yeah, yeah. for, for, for the reason that Mr. Latham gives. Like, um, you know, it's like, in fact, one has to have freedom for a specific purpose. And, <laughs> and also, like, not everyone can have freedom. Not everyone can handle freedom. I mean, there's also... Not the, everyone wants freedom. Well, I mean, there's also the reality, for example, of things like addiction, yeah. actually, you know, in the way in which, like, let's say... <laughs> things being made available to people who don't necessarily have enough self-discipline to be able to deal with them for whatever reason sure. is going to result actually in like very quickly that that freedom mm. tips over into a sort of form of slavery. Although maybe you could say in fact that, you know, the value as such also includes that proviso within it. I mean, as someone who has suffered like very serious addiction issues, <laughs> um, yeah, in a, in a horrible sense, maybe I have to affirm that freedom, even though it was incredibly self-destructive. I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, freedom for who, where it lies. Um... I mean, ultimately, everybody <laughs> is free in a certain way. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's true. Real quick, uh, just to uh, Greg Vickers asked, where is the event? Um, it's somewhat private. Uh, if any of you are in London and you do want to come to the event tomorrow night, the talk that I'm giving, uh, you can hit me up, DM me on Twitter or something, or hit me up in an email or DM. And there, I think there are some still some spaces, but it's not like a publicized thing. So just let me know if you want it, if you're interested. Yeah, this is a good question. Which one? The, the from Max, M A. Go for it. Okay, so the question, it's for both of us, but especially for me, um, is it necessary for feminist politics to be at, at least a little bit pro-capitalist? Yeah, I mean, my my book from 2009, is not really a book, it's actually just a glorified pamphlet, but um, I was arguing very much against the, the kind of uh, relationship between feminism and capitalism um, at that time, in the sense that, like, capitalism started to become very fem feminized, you know, that, like, jobs and everything in the service economy were being very uh, branded as, like, good for women, and, you know, that women were especially suited, especially in the kind of uh, Thatcher's sort of destruction of uh, male, typically male industry uh, in the UK. Um, and I obviously very against uh, this branding. So like the branding of capitalism as uh, feminized as a female thing. And I, I know, of course, I argue completely against the idea that the culmination, historical culmination of feminism is in capitalism, right? But it's a very complicated question about what capitalism does do and not just for women, you know, it's it's as Marx points out in the Communist Manifesto. You know, it's kind of dissolves all these old family ties. It dissolves kind of you know the spirit world, you know, the spiritual world. It dissolves religion. Um, you know, you become part of this kind of globalized um, network in a certain way. And you know, and actually, I've become more and more kind of uh, pagan and pre-historical. Uh, and uh, I'm you know uh, almost pre-Christian in certain ways, but um, also not in others. And uh, so. I suppose I would say contemporary what gets called feminism today is de facto uh, pro-capitalist uh, for sure like it kind of has a very uh, kind of complicit relationship not just in the consumer feminism that is everywhere yeah someone asked about woke capital 
the yeah, wealth so, capital yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's. I just want to, yeah. to get to that in a second, but I mean, I think you know, one has to ask in the first place, like, why one would need the term feminism, like, why one would call oneself a feminist in the yeah. first place. And it's obvious that, you know, all of these kinds of concepts, these kinds of ideological concepts, function somehow within this sort of semiotic structure of signaling something to someone. I mean, it's a political movement. You know, you ask questions about political movements, well, like, who, who pushes them, actually, you know, and usually one does discover that behind the, you know, liberation movement is somebody who has an agenda which is less Oh, reoffering it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Which is less uh, less utopian in some way. And I think that, you know, to even be thinking in the terms of, of, of ideology and to be thinking in the terms of feminism is already you kind of conceded too much, you know? Right. And I mean, in terms of questions of capitalism, like, you know, I mean, obviously there's also a term that means different things to different people. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You want to talk about world capital. But... Well, I would only add to that that it's a. It's one way to think about it, or one way to put it is, um, you know, who's really driving some of these cultural movements that, that arise? The protesters, or are there really kind of other interests behind it? That's one way to think about it, but I think an even more convincing way to think about it that's, a, that's more in, empirically accurate is not so much who's pushing it, but what gets selected. So the problem is not that there's like capital, like big capital, like CEOs and marketing people are like, you know, at the bottom of the rise of kind of like woke culture. It's not like they're driving it or causing it for some ulterior motives, but a certain, you know, if you have a bunch of people protesting different things, a certain uh, set of ideas and practices are going to get selected by the media, by marketing tactics, a certain practices are going to get picked out and elevated and generalized. Uh, and that's, that's how capital kind of enters 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 into play here i think just a slight bit of a wrinkle but uh, i think that i think that that's how, that's how i see the woke capital thing like i think all the woke stuff is a pretty organic uh kind of uh uh uprising of kind of cultural energy i mean the it, bubonic plague is organic sure sure oh i'm not de i'm not defending it i'm mm -hmm. saying that but i am saying but i am saying that it does reflect um real kind of uh, human tendencies from from a kind of, that are kind of bubbling up from a grassroots in a grassroots way. But then what's happening is, as Nina was saying, it's per, um, it, it's just basically consistent with um, a lot of capitalist interests, basically. And so it's getting selected and it's getting played up. And you see things like the Gillette ads, and you see now you see like capitalists falling over themselves to be you know uh, who's more anti-racist and who's more feminist, well, Gillette or Nike. Well, I, I think I mean I think I agree with you know Nick Land's point on this is that we don't really have capitalism actually. What we have is this kind of nexus. Of, of corporate and state interests that are sort of intertwined in an important respect, you know, and like, uh, yeah, I mean, like the the critique of you know of capital from the point of view of the ideological constraints that it has to operate under. In practice, you know, there is this substrate somehow. You know? Right. I mean, the, the person who's selecting, who is that person actually? You it's, know, the market. They, it's the market. No, it's not the market. It's it's some kind of force which exists actually in order to um, define the market, define the, the limits of the market. I mean, if you consider the market from the point of view of, you know, just like anthropology, like to actually create physical market, mm -hmm. depends on a political decision actually in order to protect that market. And those political forces, I don't know, it's not exactly a market driven phenomenon in its own right, it's something else. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with that. It's definitely something else. It's, it's definitely more complicated. What are you laughing at? I'm just laughing at the, uh, no one here is pre-Christian, stop laughing. 
It's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> DC, you want to take that one? Does feminist ideology make a claim to create a certain kind of sacred aura, or is it taboo without order? Uh-huh. I don't know. What are the feminist? What is the feminist relation to the sacred? I mean, there's a kind of. Um, there's a, it, it, it does profane, in fact, a certain kind of normative model, you know, of the holy family. Like, if you consider, like, how, mm. I mean, you know, second wave feminism definitely foregrounds a certain kind of um, independent female subjectivity is no longer the holy family. Mm. I think you have to, be, I mean, there are lots of different uh, strands and aspects to feminism. And obviously, what we're criticizing is the kind of, you know, the woke. Uh, capital corporate consumer feminism branded thing that you know and that's that's you know just obviously awful um <laughs> um i mean i don't know i think there are lots of feminists who are interested in a kind of uh resacralization of of the feminine or the female actually mm. if you think about kind of goddess cults and you know various forms of like earth mother worship i mean you might you know women who run with the wolves yeah or like yeah. you know lots of women into tantra and like the kind of you know i mean i think i think the question would be something like you know what is the power mm. particular to to women what you know what is the magic that women have you know what is it that makes men and women you know love each other and want to spend time with each other mm. you know and and i suppose it's those particular qualities you know women women can be like extremely mesmerizing <laughs> like they're very very you know hypnotizing in a certain way and you know they can be very pleasant to spend time with. i think the, can be. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's like an aspect of feminism actually where it has this remnant of this kind I'm of talking about a man this kind of this kind of <laughs> female female sacred power maybe you know i mean like Actually, that's something that was also, in a way, kind of faced before the movements. I think that the strange hybrid of a, some kind of like political push, which is actually sort of towards an even more profane reality, combined with uh, this kind of remnant of something which is like a little bit older, actually, and kind of more interesting, you know, and, you know, and have to have to separate those two, you know. And I mean, obviously, we're going in, in the direction that we're going now. Um, you know, which is sort of towards an even more brutal, you know, and, so, and, and flatter, you know, form of kind of like brainwashed exploitation, basically, of, of all these women who call themselves feminists. Well, there is an empirical story here that is kind of relevant. It's that the, the idea is that uh, leftists in general are higher on openness and People who are higher on openness are more open to superstitions and uh, different types of like new age ideas. So, not well, to, well, not why to, is it? What is superstition? Well, the idea. So the idea here would be that uh, women who self-select into feminism are just really gullible. Uh, that's partially one of the reasons why they select into feminism, and so they they're easily convinced of like superstitions and new age ideas about magic and stuff. Like you could argue that leftism, like basically what I'm getting at is that leftism and magical superstitious ideas do have a kind of underlying shared uh, psychological substrate called openness. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like magic is a complex topic, you know. Sure. And there's actually, you know, as you know, Nina, like there's a there's a certain drive towards the magical on, on, on the part of, of contemporary, you know, feminists. And in fact, mm -hmm. the, the forms of magic that they're somehow interested in are, are the kind of sort of low magic that people would talk about. But, well, it's just like Harry Green Potter, was. I mean, well, to be honest, I mean, it's I mean, like you know. absolutely awful. But even, even like the idea basically of using like these kinds of objects in this very, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, uh, 
let's say, um, forced way in order to kind of create determined effects. Like it's not it's not like the kind of magic that, for example, someone like you know Marsilio Ficino or Giordano Bruno was interested in. It's something which is like which is like very very stupid actually. Mm -hmm. And um, I think probably for various reasons when people talk about magic or even when people think about magic today, they usually think about that kind of thing. It's something which is superstitious, it's something which is opposed to science. I mean, if you read, you know, Frazier, he, he really clearly makes this kind of distinction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the interesting thing also about Frazier is he said that actually magic persists as this kind of underground of rational society. And like what that mm -hmm. underground is, he, he psychologizes it. But then you've just sort of moved the problem to the question of psychology. And I think that's interesting to think about. And the reason why I'm taking this detour is sure. with respect to the concept <laughs> of a witch hunt, for example, you know, like uh, that's where you actually sort of you see this kind of resurgence of, of magical forces kind of swirling. And I think that's also true of any ideology, like the way in which it combines something which is very effective you know, with something which is very symbolic and how those aspects, you know, and that's why also, you know, you have your project to make paganism great again, you know, but we are also in a pagan situation, but it's kind of in a situation where right. we're not even kind of cognizant, actually, of these kinds of forces that we're, that we're being moved by. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think a lot of the people, like, especially this sort of quasi-feminist invocation of magic in the art world and mm. elsewhere, I mean, it's just kind of like narcissism latching on to, like, having watched too many episodes of Buffy mm. or something. I mean, you know, and you can't really be a narcissist and be interested in uh, Eros, in fact, because you actually have to be, you know, and if Eros is the kind of, like, you know, what gets kind of recognised and manipulated in, in magic in a certain way, you have to be very subtle and to think very carefully about the desire of the other for example and I think a lot of these people are very just they're just narcissists and like you know um, using particular words and actually they don't really understand the power of words either for that matter. Mm. I mean the narcissist is indeed somebody who sees their own reflection everywhere and yeah. I think the problem of you know as, as, um, as Blake put it to cleanse the doors of perception sort of starts with um, you know cleansing one's own image from it so you can see clearly what's on it on the outside, which goes back to your question, Meta. I mean, it's like, um, you know, if you're able to actually see things beyond yourself, then maybe, you know, there's something that you, you can move towards. Mm. <laughs> we got a question that changes gears a little bit. How do I become smart? You read books and then you pretend, you pretend like you understood them. And no, you pretend no, you remember no, no, things. No, That's basically no, what smart people no, do. No, no, Justin. Look, I've been an academic for six years. I know how people act smart. Anymore. Oh, you're shit. I got to like change <laughs> my are, mental routines. using the word retard. Okay, well, I've known enough academics for enough time to know that the, there's. it's really simple about how to become smart. You read books. You pretend you understood them. You buy books that you never have the time to read, uh, but you act like you read them. No, this and is you not get... true. Don't turn this into this man. <laughs> like, in fact, like... would you de okay? Would you deny that among highly educated people who come off as very smart and indeed are smart, would you deny that uh, a, a baseline practice of of living that type of lifestyle is being able to talk about books you've either never read or don't really remember? I mean, would no, you deny no, that that's like a basic fact of academic yeah. and, and smart intellectual well, high life? You're defining it in a certain way, but I think that you can have a very smart, illiterate person in the sense. Mm, but sure. isn't he being ironic? I mean, he doesn't really think that's what, you no. know, that's just like... I'm never ironic. 
no, no. I mean, no. In all seriousness, okay. I'm being, I'm being a bit playful um, when I say like, <laughs> yeah. Well, put it, put it this way. I mean, I'm not. I don't think what I'm saying is necessarily a bad thing. Like, one thing you learn to do as you get quote unquote smarter or whatever mm-hmm. is you learn. You can like look at a book and barely read it, but kind of like grok it pretty quickly. Like, I, I have books that I own, for instance, that. I've only really kind of like looked through, but I looked through it just enough to kind of get the point. And then I put it on my shelf and then I can go talk about it. I can use it. I, mm-hmm. I can, I can make something of it, but I didn't actually read it. So that's all. I was just saying that in a playful way. Like um, you get one way to become smart is to get good at like extracting what you need and want from uh, long texts and being quick and efficient about it. And part of that is, is bravado. Part of that is yeah. uh, projection and part of that is confidence and all these I, other I, kinds of things yeah. that are actually non-intellectual. I think there are very few people who actually like embody or inhabit ideas, um, which is to say to like feel them, to experience ideas. And I think we're very used to like dividing, you know, I suppose like a mind thought or rational thought with a kind of emotional one. And, um, you know, but actually to recombine the two to actually like fit. What are people writing? <laughs> your both like Both can make people stupid, actually. That's, that's, What's that? That's yeah, of course. Truth. Yeah. Like, in fact, people can become stupid by, by reading too many books. In fact, people can become stupid by being too focused on books. I mean, what's a book, actually? I mean, like, you know, it's like if you consider the history of humanity, mm. anatomically modern humans mm. are 50,000 years old. You know, writing was invented about... 5,000 years ago, mm. at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, mm. you know, and it's been kind of downhill ever since, <laughs> wouldn't you say? One way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I want. I need to respond to some of the haters uh, <laughs> saying that I admit I'm being a sued. Uh, Rob Rocker, who I sent a copy, I sent him my copy of Being in Time, notes that there was only one bookmark in it. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I, I admit it. Um, but no, look. what. You have your cup there. Like, there you I'm go. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, so so let me let me take a minute to to respond to this. Um, one of the things I like to do is just be honest about, uh, you know, how the sausage gets made in terms of uh, becoming like an academic or someone who like occupies a position of like highly educated and, and quote unquote smart and like I can produce smart stuff and whatever. Um, well, when you actually like look under the hood, it's actually pretty it's actually pretty ugly, like for, for the most part, what you find. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying people should. Uh, you know, pretend or be pseudo intellectual. But what I'm saying is that there is like people are the guy asked, how do you become smart? All I'm really saying is that if you're being honest in, in answering that question, like fake it till you make it is one part of that of that of the true answer. I mean, I think anyone who says otherwise, that's like that's like that's a kind of like pretend performance personally. Mm-hmm. We don't need to uh, focus on my on, on my pseudo intellectualism. Huh? You know, I mean, like, even the question of what does it mean to be smart? I mean, you know, also, like, I mean, we have this kind of obsession with intelligence in, in modern sure. civilization, sure. also because we live in a very technological and technocratic civilization. You know, I mean, the virtues of, you know, fortitude or, or of patience or of courage are nothing to do with intelligence, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, you know, something that Definitely. we forget, actually. I think, Definitely. You know, and, like, how can one be more courageous? How can one be more patient? How can one be more wise? Yeah, you could understand the word smart as a kind of, like, weighted function of a bunch of those things. Um, it's not just about, yeah, yeah. Well, but in some sense, even to be smart at all, you do need to have some courage. You need to, you do need to have these other kind of, like, background variables eat the cake before you make it oh yeah i like how jordan peterson comes here that's how famous my live stream is jordan b peterson himself comes in here on a regular basis mm. isn't that funny amazing um all right what else we got 
Are you a fem? No, I'm not going to read that. Spam one. Actually, no, that's no, kind of no, funny. Are you a feminist because your daddy left your mommy? No, actually, my parents love each other. Like, and they're, they're very, uh, very into each other, actually. It's good. It means I don't have to look after them. Very good. Uh, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Well, yeah. it's been, like, amazingly good <laughs> and amazingly bad, basically. That's the way I see it. There's a question that someone's asked twice about feminist ideology as it relates to the tribe nuclear family, a couple who adopts a spinster. Those family structures have evolved due to tech advances in labour. I mean, yeah, again, I mean, feminist ideology or feminist ideas, I don't know, totally diverse in that sense. I mean, you could say, well, some feminism celebrates, uh, I suppose, I mean, any or all of those things. I'm not quite sure um, exactly how to respond i mean there is a very complicated question about well what do you do when you've got lots of very educated women <laughs> you know and i i am one right so you know by objective measures yeah. and uh you know like what does it mean to then also talk about kind of paganism and a kind of pre-industrial relation to nature and to you know between men and women you know of, of course in a sense what i'm saying is sort of impossible you know and it's but it's very clear that like you know industrialization and and various types of feminism have you know created massive rifts between men and women for example and have like you know increased unhappiness increased discord you know and uh i think there's a way of being intelligent which is also perhaps about seeing the possibilities in the past and also about reconceiving our conception of time such that we don't accept the one you know the linear kind of historical industrial uh, model we don't accept the idea of teleology in a certain way but we do accept perhaps uh, a certain relation to the present in which we are we are here like together we're all talking and you know there's something so wonderful about this you know <laughs> living in the moment in a certain way um and using that relation to the present to rethink the the future in relation to the past you know maybe in a cyclical uh Way. I think you know too much is in a way like attached to this word feminist because people, yeah, people sure. when, when someone describes himself as a feminist like they basically they're saying like I am a woman I'm a woman who's alive today like I'm a woman who has you know a relationship to this kind of discourse well I'm a man I mean male feminists are a category of mm. their own you know zoology has obviously studied them in great detail but you know and it's to do with also like forces that are obviously bigger than uh bigger than, um, you know, any individual's, like, ideas about it. It's to do with, like, how one situates oneself in the world in a certain way in relation to different forces and, and institutions and, and powers, you know. Like, to be a feminist, to be an anti-feminist, you know, obviously one is, in a way, like, you know, more of a, you know, good thing to be than the other. Sure, like, sure. You know, and it's like, uh, it's, so I think there's a kind of... Um, it's hard to speak about it in that respect, as if it was like a really, you know, objective reality. It's like a kind of, uh, you know, it's like a world of, of of fantasies that are sort of kind of collected together in a certain kind of sort of definitely identity state yeah. that's being then deployed. That's why it's best to swerve from like the the buzzword and just mm -hmm. talk about you know what you want to say about it in your own words, just not not take the trap of the buzzwords. Mm -hmm. So we have very interesting questions here from Spice Demiurge, who has very generously given us $5. We will try not to spend it all in one place. Uh, actually, Spice Demiurge, you're kind of cheating because you packed in three questions here. Uh, what's the best TV show for pretend smart people like yourselves? Good question. A little rude, but we'll consider it. Also, should I go buy some yeah. cake? 
Good question. I'll have to think about that one. And then also, have you seen Mr. Robot, Justin? <laughs> Mr. Robot, Justin, I've never heard of it. Sounds strange. Uh, I'll answer that one quickly because I've never seen it. So that's pretty simple. Oh, it's just like Fight Club, but made into a TV series for like younger people. Is it good? Um, it's okay. Uh, I think the the best TV show thing. Um, for pretend smart people. No, like you. watch it's, good, it's, good it's, films. It's, it's, well, you can watch Civilization. The kind of. I kind of actually think. Um, yeah, yeah, Civilization. I suppose. Um, like watch good films like The Devils, Ken Russell, which is a very important film for thinking mm. about witch hunts. Uh, you know, in this case, a, a, of a man, and mm. the way in which kind of uh, social punishment works. Mm. Uh, I think uh, any film by, uh, I guess, uh, Pasolini, uh, by Fassbinder, <laughs> by Cronenberg. I don't know. I don't really. TV is like. Yeah, you shouldn't watch TV, actually. No. I mean, like, if you think about how the mechanism of television works, I mean, John Michael Greer, recently interviewed by, by Meta Nomad, it's, I think, very precise on this point. I mean, it's just these movements of these, you know, fluorescent blocks on this kind of screen, like, just moving around like pieces in your brain. <laughs> so you guys not watch any TV? Not really. Um... I mean, you know, no. I mean, okay, I have an answer for this. Since you guys kind of dodged the question, since you don't watch TV, fair enough. But my answer to that question, well, actually, technically, I can't answer the question because I'm not a pretend smart person. I'm a real smart person. Thank you. But <laughs> my answer to the question would be true crime. You should watch true crime. That's what tr that's what real smart people watch. I love true crime uh, because I like watching how. Uh, well, first of all, it's nonfiction, so you are learning, you know, empirical data about how the world works, and you're learning about the weirdest cases of how fucked up people can be, and tr good true crime shows um, walk you through this, like, amazing causal narrative about, um, you know, the steps leading up to someone doing just the most heinous shit. I find it very fascinating and illuminating, and I would defend that uh, uh, vigorously uh, from an intellectual perspective. I like the guy who asked whether he whether we're interested in Vedic philosophy or Buddhism. Mm. Or, I think that has a lot of relevance, actually. I think it's like, um, you know, one has to sort of understand in a certain way that we're living in a, in a kind of like a simulacrum of reality, you know? And, you know it's <laughs> like, uh, well, I mean, it is sort of like that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a co consensual hallucination of the definition of cyberspace in Neuromancer. <clears throat> You know, but it extends beyond like the internet or whatever the space of the internet is. And if you consider what all of these religious traditions are about, you know, they're about um, orientating oneself in a world in which things are not very certain, actually. You know? Yeah. And therefore, like, you know, if you consider like what are your guides for action, like they're going to be these texts that have been used for that purpose for a long time. I mean, there's a reason why they're selected for. You know. That was very true and very well put, but I would kindly disagree. I think Buddhism is actually about getting high from meditating. No, but I think, I think let's put it, I mean, yes, partly in a certain way. And I, I think the books are just one aspect of this, very much so, like the text or like Cohen's, you know, how they work and, you know, to kind of create a particular kind of effect. Um, you know, but I think knowing the limits of your own mind is actually what, what's the most interesting thing in a certain way, whether that's through like yoga or meditation or taking drugs or I don't know having sex like you know the one thing people don't want you to do is to know your own mind or know your own body and actually to know the relation between the two because that actually gives you an immense amount of power and, and if you think about them you know millions of people who are you know like turned away from knowing both of those things at the same time you know to, to be alienated from your own body and from your own mind 
you know, um, is, is in a sense the kind of greatest crime. Like that's the thing we have to kind of get back, you know, to remember that we are part of nature, we are nature, you know, and that, that we can, you know, have a... I don't know, a relation to the cosmos, you know, we are, we are in it, you know, and like to constantly distract oneself with sort of terrible things mm. is, you know, a kind of waste of that energy mm. and like a waste of your life. That's very well put. I don't have too much to say, I think, on this question, because I don't know too much about the Eastern traditions. I have read the book Why Buddhism is True, which kind of goes into the, <laughs> into, into kind of the, the scientific and the physiological mechanisms that kind of make sense out of Buddhism. So I do think that, yeah, I do tend to see it through that lens. I do, I do tend to see um, a lot of religion actually as, as essentially uh, serving quite quite functional kind of psychological and physiological needs. But what do you mean by functional? I mean, what's the function of what? Um, it serves it serves mental health basically in a lot of ways. Why do you have mental health? Why have, well, I'm just I mean, saying. Why not just go crazy, Justin? I mean, you, you actually sort of did. In a way, you, you could, it's just those people don't reproduce. So we're, so we're all here. We're all here in some sense because people have figured out tactics for maintaining their mind and uh, their social relationships. And religion is this kind of most of the world religions in their own way uh, mm -hmm. perform all of these like a pretty amazing kind of uh, useful functions for uh, a variety of things. It's not the only way to see it, obviously. I'm just saying. Well, but yeah. I mean, I don't know, like the fixation on the category of utility, let's say, mm -hmm. it's obviously a certain way to think. But I mean. Ultimately, if you trace those causes back far enough, then you find out that the purpose of life is is very unclear, right? Oh, no doubt. And in some sense, religion is a bulwark against getting too obsessed with utility. Like, that's precisely one of the things that it, uh, it, it it's it, it's precisely a kind of counterweight to that. Mick Buddhism is definitely not true, okay. Uh, Neoliberal Buddhism about how to cope with the crushing weight of capitalism is the exact opposite of what crime thinks says in Days of War, Nights of Love. Wow. Well, yeah, there's this critique of Buddhism about how it's basically it just makes you complacent and it makes you kind of uh, more or less cooperative with, you know, whatever reigning status quo injustices. No, and I think know, there's some truth to that. You know, but like, OK, like also the, the this kind of inevitable gravitation towards the ideological. I mean, Buddhism, what is Buddhism? I mean, there are these texts, you know, they exist, these sutras, you can read them. You know, I mean, you don't have to become a Buddhist, in fact, like, you know, mm. there's simply these texts that are yes. available, you know. And what do you make of them? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, like, it seems to me like, you know, like... Have you, know. you ever met anyone who's regretted doing yoga or meditating? No. <laughs> Nor have I. Mm. <laughs> I wish we had a fire. Well, there aren't really any negative side effects. Oh, fire. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm. I want a fire. Yeah, I mean, like, it's some, it's interesting, like, how, how one has this urge, like, to identify as something, right, as, as this kind of a category, as to, to be a feminist, to be a Buddhist, to be, to be an anti-fascist, to be whoever, mm. you know, like, um, I think it's, it's better to, in a sense, be nothing, right, to just sort of, like, be alive, mm. to, to be, to yeah, think, to think, to be. Yeah, yeah. Someone here says that uh, Buddhism seems very antisocial. And uh, it reminds me of Chesterton writes a little bit about this. I forget the quote. I'm not good at like paraphrasing or like reciting quotes <laughs> from memory. But Chesterton writes about how Bo Buddhism and Catholicism have some have some obviously kind of overlapping <laughs> traits. But whereas Buddhism turns inward, uh, Christianity or Catholicism turns outward. So it's like a lot. A lot of, yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Well, obviously, like in in, in in Christianity, a lot of the sacraments, like prayer, is essentially a kind of meditation. Yeah. So, like, obviously, there's there's lots of internal, inward types of uh, practices and rituals that are that are kind of built in. Also, uh, what is what is most internal is most external. You know who said that? No. Hegel said that. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, I have. A, I Hegel have also said that man is a plant. To get, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, uh, Riley Burton was citing my other video about crime think, right? I did a little book review about that. Uh, who's your favorite philosopher? Um, let's see what other kind of questions. We only have to take the ones we want. I only practice religions from the Dune books. Yeah, I don't play the favorite philosopher game. Just like, it's like, what's your favorite color? I don't have an answer to that question. I never do. I have stuff. I also I also find it kind of insulting to talk about philosophers and this like you were kind of saying this before like like who do you like who do you dislike who do you agree with who do you disagree with yeah I kind of just avoid that uh, those sorts of uh, registers like I don't like these kind of like simple binary questions like you're gonna give us like a laundry list of uh, of you know like it's like a survey or something mm-hmm. we're gonna fill that out with short answers good. the answer is never to this <laughs> you don't like to this. No. Are we going to do magic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nina just walked in with a candle, a big-ass candle. It's, it's so we can have some fun. Also, this is the answer to the um, nice. the cake question. I don't know if you could just see that. <laughs> there we go. Wait, let me see. Let me see. Dude, are you going to do this? This is, this is Oh, that's pretty badass. Are you going to do a seance? No. Put the candle in. Uh, this may be way too dark. I think uh, <laughs> it's out of view. I think it was it was good like this. So. <laughs> Although only my face is even well, we're partially lit. Daniel's disappeared into That's fine. into the darkness. That's fine. Who's your favorite Luke Turner victim? That's a very funny question. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> oh, no, it's like this crazy guy. I can't talk about that because of the court case. Do you have an open court case? I can't talk about it. Well, I could, but I choose. Uh, Kishore says that we're uh, avoiding the Catholic question. What was the Catholic question? The Catholic question is an excellent it. question, by the way. What is it? I mean, we were, we were, I mean, you know, we were in Rome recently, actually. Oh, so were we. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a very interesting place. And we were there because also uh, in um, relation to Philip K. Dick's line, that the empire never ended. And we were sort of very interested in understanding that relationship between, you know, Roman power and Catholic power because of the PKD, you know, his empire is this kind of force that is sort of identified with, you know, Rome. I mean, he sees Rome, in fact, you know, in, in, you should turn the light in on. Orange County, California. <laughs> you really want- I, we can keep the candle, but I'll turn the light on. Oh, it's so boring, Justin. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a popular request. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at the mercy of my audience. Um, no. Well, anyway, the, the question of Catholicism and the question of symbolism and the symbolism of the Catholic Church and the, and the imperialism of the semiotic, actually, which you see in Catholicism, um, I don't know what to make of that. I still sort of don't. I'm kind of trying to understand as well. Like, like, I mean, for example, like uh, we were in the Vatican Museum, and the Vatican Museum is a very anti-pagan place. You know, I mean, it's a place where, in fact, you know, the pagan ritual objects and all of these different, you know, sacred locations were, were, were taken and, and, and put and, you know in, in such a way as to in a sense desacralize them yeah. and, and change them from being ritual objects to um, to uh, 
to um, to exhibition objects, mm. and um, yeah, I mean, what that is, you know, what what's going on there is is, um, I mean, you're as, as the representative of paganism here. I mean, you know, I mean, that's Catholic power for, for yeah. me. It's like, it, but I mean, also Catholic power is this kind of form of rationalization, hierarchalization. Um, the kind of operations that are performed by someone like Thomas Aquinas, who's like obviously yeah. you know, he's a great philosopher, one must respect him. And you know, like the way in which Catholicism creates an ordered, sacred cosmos, Absolutely. you know, from the symbols and puts them in relation. Yeah, I mean, it's very helpful for lots of people. I mean, mm. I but I often think of this phrase like "one God, no masters." Mm. Mm. You know, and what does it mean to have a relation to God or nature, for mm. example, as you find in Spinoza, mm. where the uh, the idea of like worship is, mm. you know, walking in a forest trying to understand God's creation, for mm. example, you know, rather than let's say worshiping in a church. What's the difference in a certain mm. way if one's sort of act of reverence and mm. prayer and respect for, uh, you know. I don't know, let's say the sacred in in nature um, is like this, you know, but actually to map the mind of God, to understand mm. that God's creation is to have a relation to nature, actually, you mm. know, and of course, like these churches are, you know, sites of and places of uh, a particular kind of ritualized worship, but like God doesn't belong to Catholicism, you know, in that sense, sorry, Justin. Um, I'm just listening and thinking. <laughs> Um, you know, so in that sense, mm. you know, why why does it have to be kind of you know, channeled or narrowed into these particular forms of reference? You know, and I, and I think the question of like pagan, like like if you think about, I guess, the relationship between polytheism and monotheism, I mean, there are lots of uh, kind of cultures that that sort of, in a sense, like have both in a certain way. You know, that that you know we can think of it in terms of different dimensions mm. of the spiritual. You know, what does it mean to live in a in a world in which one sees or feels, you know, spirits everywhere. It's absolutely possible, even in this very damaged, you know, Kali Yuga, mm. <laughs> broken, sort of like proliferating, you know, kind of plastic, mm. you know, world. It's possible to have moments of um, uh, intense mm. um, sacred and spiritual uh, beauty and kind of revelation and, and sort of heightened experiences, like with somebody else or in nature or, or you know, I don't know, witnessing things, feeling things. Um, you know, we, I, I think, you know, these are all uh, experiences of God in a certain way, but they're also of, of nature, perhaps, often. And, and Spinoza says, like, Deus Siva Natura, like, they're just two ways of seeing the same thing, you know, in fact. Mm, I mean, <laughs> Quincy Latham is asking me, um, made me fear the power of the church. I mean, the, the church, the Catholic Church, is a very powerful entity, and you see that in Rome. I mean, it's clear. I mean, these it's amazing. basilicas, it's these, so amazing. These basilicas that they've created. I mean, there's something. Speak up a bit. Well, um, you know, I mean, also, I mean, how powerful is the Catholic Church? Actually, I mean, they've been around for a long time, and I think they're going to be around for a long time yet. So. <laughs> yeah, that's how you define power. I mean. It's interesting because my I, I was recently in Rome and my response was very different. I think um, I mean I, w I was stunned by it and uh, it really made quite an impression on me. I feel like of all the European cap capitals, you know, it's it's it was like of all the great European cities, it was by far the best one I've been to. It was like the only one that really made it made a dent on me emotionally and intellectually and and I guess spiritually. Uh, but I mean, look, the way that I see this is is kind of like I think that uh, Catholicism took what was good from paganism and then made it work even better and made it even more glorious basically like pagan the problem with paganism is like it it doesn't it doesn't really work 
right? Like it, there's a reason why there's a reason why paganism kind of went by the wayside and Catholicism was this kind of like mega world historical force that uh, would, uh, at, on some level um, was kind of like fundamentally transforming individuals and societies in a direction that, you know, makes possible like everything we're, we're Why is doing that a today. Good thing? I mean, most things that exist today are absolutely terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my reading of it is that, uh, that is a generally, that is generally a good thing. Um, obviously like that, you know, talking about developments in world history is very difficult because you have mm-hmm. obviously a bunch of things going on and how do you separate out things like capitalism from, you know, Christianity, obviously it's just, it's very difficult, but you can have interesting debates about it. I mean, my, my view is that uh, the re- one of the reasons why Catholicism took off and was such an explosively kind of uh, effective and powerful uh, social and political force mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in an overwhelmingly uh, good direction in, in general, I would say, uh, is precisely because it did, it, it took all that was good from paganism, uh, but then it kind of, it made some key discoveries about uh, like how you actually kind of organize that. As, as a war machine, like Catholicism is the war machine. Mm-hmm. Paganism was, you know, like a lot of experimentation and, you know, a lot of paganism was kind of like the experimental soup from which Catholicism emerges, but Catholicism is kind of the winner that, that emerges, I think. I don't know, it's, it's a little simple to say that, I think. I mean, what Catholicism does, I mean, this is what you see in the Vatican Museum, is it deterritorializes, right? It deterritorializes beliefs. Yeah. You know, in the basilicas, you see on the floors all of these symbols, Celtic symbols, Jewish symbols. You know, you look up and you see these kind of Greco-Roman statues, you know, all organized around, you know, the cross. And it seems to me that, like, there's a way in which Catholicism, you know, which means, of course, universal, like, it represents a certain form of, like, symbolic strategy, actually, which is able to almost enfold everything with it. And people today now feel, you know, I mean, Catholics especially, I think that, you know, the, the Catholic Church has somehow deviated, actually, in a certain way from its, from its mission with, like, the new Pope is much more interested in, you know, progressive causes, you know, he's making a big... Um, show of, of a certain kind of ecumenicism. And I mean, I wonder whether that's really a discontinuity from Catholic practice or actually an extension of it, because it is just like, it just absorbs, yeah. you know, it just absorbs. And like, you know, like what would, what would Catholicism not sacrifice? I mean, it's based around the ultimate sacrifice, you know, and it's like the double meaning also of that symbol is like, you know, you can never have such a relation to, you know, God again, because... You know, there was there was one Christian in a sense, as Jesus, you know, and he died on the cross. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Yeah, no, that's all. That's all. Those are all very rich reflections. I mean, yeah. I I mean, I you know the way you put it, like paganism doesn't work. I mean, I think. You know, it's such a such a, a weird and utilitarian way of, of putting it, and then also to retroactively read history in this way. I mean, you no, know, I mean, what is paganism in a certain way? Well, it's it's like understanding one's relation to nature. It's it's sort of being in nature to a certain extent. It's like respecting the spirits of places. It's having a kind of relation to the sacred. You know, to but the, can you organize a community around it that lasts over time? Well, of course. I mean, like, you know, this is, I mean, the fact, like, I think to to understand history as like, well, this thing crushed this other thing, 
therefore this yeah. thing that crushed yeah. this other thing is like better is i mean it's just really really you know you know and like i mean what daniel says about the the assimilative power of of, of catholicism in particular like all your symbols belong to us you know i mean the way in which you know the churches are often built on pagan sites i mean did you go mm -hmm. and visit like the mithraic temple mm -hmm. you know this is like one of the most incredible... no, you shouldn't talk about the mithraic oh yeah okay yeah. oh why well, oh, no, no, it's just mysterious. No, it's, it's, you know. There were uh, secret rites you practiced that shall not be uh, stated. Is that what's going on here? I couldn't. Um, no, I appreciate. I appreciate what you're saying. I do. I mean, and I and I I agree. There's something kind of vulgar about you know uh, you know it's very like uh, it's like Thrasymachus or something like that. Like whatever religion spreads the furthest, whatever strongest is like the right one. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. Uh, it's not that might makes right, but it's more that um, you know. Like we're communists, right? Like you're a communist, right? Are you? Well, you, we can bracket that. I think you're you're something like a communist, uh, something like a communist. And I think what is a communist? Just okay, well, we'll return to that. If you want to have a conversation, you have to like use words, even if they're you know have no. But you but, but, but you but you see, well, but you're so just me, using the word. You're like demanding like a sort you're, of like you're right. An identification. You're right, and I've already agreed that that's that's like vulgar and should be avoided. So. But just just to proceed, I mean, if 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 what you want is um, a, like a truly coherent and just social community of any kind, let alone a society, um, you're you do want out of your religion something that can hold people together and endure over time against other types of like ideological competitors. You do, I think you do. Yeah, I think like you do. Want that. Um, not in a not in an oppressive <laughs> way. What you, what you want what you want out of a religion is a social technology in which people can voluntarily identify with it. And they get attuned in a way that is cooperative and cohesive without oppressing or forcing anyone to do anything. And this is my idea of like, it basically hit the nail on the head of how to do that. No, what it what it, it was able to do is to <laughs> universalize and globalize, and to actually like you know absolutely eliminate the sacred and specific quality of places. You know what mm. people forget is like how rooted in place like the vast majority of human history was. Like you know where one is from and where one you know lives and where one resides, where one dwells. You know like this question of like the locative, the location. You know and the kind of the sacred or important bits like the special tree, like this particular area. Where where you can find magic mushrooms, for example. You know, I mean, these are these are like profoundly important things, and they're to do okay. with like place. You know, sure. what Catholicism does, you know, and communism as well is is to absolutely elevate, or just you know, to destroy, you know, the specific in mm. the name of the general and the universal. Right. Be, yeah. Okay, I agree with all that. Um, I'm sympathetic to all of that. And obviously, I'm not like an anti-state. If I'm a communist, I'm like anti-statist, just like you. Um, and, I, and I'm so I'm all for like preserving local differences uh, and not forcing anything on anyone. But I would argue that, you know, I, I don't I don't think that Catholicism had this kind of like um, forceful, conquering, uh, like violent kind of character that that you see in it. Well, it is, it, 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 is, it is. It is, of course, in the end, Roman Catholicism. And, and it has, of course, like, yeah. a way in which. Of course, yeah. There's a way with like, so it somehow represents itself as in, you know, and this also goes back to, to PKD, but like, you know, the empire never ended, and it's like almost like it transformed itself into a whole new dimension of power, you know, to then That's rule right. over that, you know, and it was no longer even just a question of a purely material, you know, like brute force. Now it was actually even like the categories that you would use to think with also became colonized by this certain kind of like imperialism. Yes, definitely. The symbolic. And, sure. um, you know, I think. You know, with respect to Catholicism as well, like you can say, like this kind of attitude. I mean, maybe this is a modern deviation. I don't know, but like the question of quantity with respect to Catholicism. You know how, 
um, the Catholic Church is in a way committed to the production of more Catholics, not necessarily better Catholics. Well, I guess the question of the tension between those two different things, you know, but how one is detached from, from place, how one is placed in the symbolic, you know, how right. one is placed in a world which is composed out of symbols rather than out of senses. Right. You know? And this kind of question of operation of, of historical forces. Right. Well, I mean, no. a lot of people make the argument that actually Catholicism is pretty impressively strong on uh, precisely the ability to maintain a lot of local diversity because, you know, there are so many Catholics all over the world and they, there is a lot of variation in how they do things and how they see things and how they practice things. Mm -hmm. And yet it is this kind of authoritarian, unified, global organization that also allows for a lot of local diversity and somehow, you know, the, the system kind of makes it work. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're like really into paganism, I could see how the Catholic Church would, would would seem like a kind of historical enemy that kind of ran roughshod over what was unique and and interesting and valuable about about the pagan practices. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, pagan practices also. I mean, just to, just to remember, of course, like that's a term that comes from Catholicism. I mean, there isn't like actually like a pagan practice per se that exists. Sure. Before, so I mean, for example, you know, like the emperor, you know, Julian the Apostate, who, who wants to sort of like let's say repaganize the empire. Like specifically, he wants to return it to, you know, to Platonism actually, and to you know a certain kind of like relation to the mysteries. You know, and it's, yeah. it's not just it's not just the pagan per se. It's like it's sort of something something different, qualitatively different. Yeah. In different cases. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm curious about Nina's answer to Jean. Uh, John Michael's question, because that's kind of what I was getting at that, like, you know, obviously, like, if you want coherent, you know, political communities that are just and, and, you know, what I think a lot of us, you know, like dream of or aspire to in terms of the ideal society, like, if that is what you want, then you probably don't want religious practices that tend towards just generalized superstition, and kind of all these centrifugal tendencies of, uh, you know, that that basically allow people to go in a million different directions um, and separate from each other, basically. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think if I'm going to be consistent on the question of the place, then it is about specific places and it's about kind of, you know, tribes in a certain way, perhaps. Mm. Um, the Greco-Roman paganism sort of degenerated. Yeah, I mean... So it's a feature. It's a feature that paganism basically allows a... a, a, a a virtually limitless uh, kind of infinity of, of variation and experimentation with no kind of uh, centripetal forces hold, holding things together. You see that as yeah, a feature, I not think, I think, I mean, increasingly, I think all of those kind of globalizing and universalizing um, projects have been, you know, disaster. And they've, in fact, destroyed the sacred and destroyed the specificity of place. I mean, even this idea of like general superstition and individualistic fortune telling, I mean, why wouldn't that be better than this kind of like, I don't know, I mean, plastic bags <laughs> and chain shops or whatever. And, you know, why, why wouldn't that be more, um, you know, like a, a very much more interesting relation to the cosmos, you mm. know, to think of oneself in relation to the planets and to the gods and to the forces, you know, of a place. Um I guess, uh, yeah, there, yeah. Is, there is no paganism without human sacrifice. That's true. Sure. I mean, like where I grew up in Wiltshire, you know, it's like there's all these sites like the Henges, which have evidence of child sacrifice, amongst other things. Um, and I think, yeah, if you think about um, 
Aztecs and, and so on. Yeah, it may be. I mean, but we also live in a world in which humans are sacrificed in the most uh, hygienic and uh, horrendous of ways uh, today in any case and we just don't call it human sacrifice but it absolutely is and i mm. and I, I can think of no more glorious death than to be sacrificed to the sun for can you imagine justin your, your beating heart being 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 torn from your chest on like this aztec pyramid under this <laughs> baking hot sun you know the light this golden light the last moments of your life as you see your own your own heart you, you know bleeding I'm just above you. you as the priest lifts it above you and it's like this offering that'd be epic yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all I did was call someone a retard. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's such a, I mean, like, why they should have made more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I, well, I mean, just real quick, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I mean, I, I guess, like, what I the, what I think about this is that what we currently have now, like, atheist kind of, like, like, mod, like contemporary atheist secular progressivism is kind of like paganism. Like, like I, I would say that in, like, Western liberal societies, kind of the dominant religious ethos of atheists is is something like a paganism like everyone has all these different kinds of vaguely you know spiritual kind of conceptions and like personal practices where they think that they're you know uh, affecting the future through all these different kinds of superstitions whether it be like the power of positive thinking or you know using sage to clean their room or Marie Kondo or whatever it might be you know like right now is basically you could interpret the current kind of moment of liberal capitalism in the west as a time of, of where paganism is 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 raining in some sense in some sense and that doesn't look very good to me it looks very consistent but, with but, woke capital and but, looks, no, yeah. but none of this has a relation to nature i mean or to, or to place, the sacred or to the sacred you know like paganism has to be about those three things but what you just said you have no institutional technology for promoting the true correct version of paganism that you believe in no but then, and that's the problem the, uh, the catholic church does that, that's precisely what it has <laughs> well, yeah it wins i mean you know like great <laughs> right well but what i'm saying is if you take the truths that you're interested in, that you believe in, and then you also evolve a functional kind of social technology, you will get something like Catholicism, I think. And isn't that pretty good? Like, isn't it good to have the truths that yeah. you, you believe in and also functional, you know, reproducible social technology? I, I guess the question of technique, I mean, of course, there's a sense in which there's no going back. I mean, like the moment writing is invented, you you actually um, introduce schizophrenia into an entire culture. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, the Greeks have to deal with the schizophrenia induced by having a technology that means that you can hear voices, but the person isn't there. Like to shift from an oral to a writing mm -hmm. you know, literate um, culture is extremely destructive of the human mind. And, and schizophrenia literally means, you know, like broken hearted, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, in a sense, like, the argument goes like Ong and others that they invent tragedy in order to cope with the kind of the schizophrenia induced by literacy and, and so so I mean of course like technology is that you know the moment someone draws a, a, a triangle on the ground or scratches you know like in a sense there's no going back of course but mm -hmm. I think you know using our historical imagination using our relation to a, to a place you know to, to have a kind of I mean it could be a you know, a kind of elevated experience. It could be an intense experience, you know, of the specificity of a, of a place like visiting Plato's Academy or, or something like this, you know, or, or understanding Blake's London. Like these mm. things are possible, like to have these sorts of like, um, I don't know, like very mm. vivid sort of like encounters with something real, you know, mm. and it's about the, about, about place. And I don't know, I'm not, this idea of okay. social technologies, I mean, right. this is like very, it's like kind of functionalist. I mean, yeah, also right. like we're not yeah. really in a position to basically, 
even you know start devising these kinds of things and also like i mean we could i mean people listen to us no one will listen to us i mean like right. the best thing that we can do in a certain way is like you could devise let's say like certain kinds of practices or, or or you know activities that sort of work for you in a way in order to you know have your your small platoon right you know within society i mean ultimately of course like the mega forces compose you know the world the globalized world that we're living in mm-hmm. i mean you know it's like it is in a sense like amusing to sort of speculate on these grand themes and there's mm-hmm. a kind of pleasure in doing so it's a kind of a narcissistic pleasure of course because it's like you know you can think whatever you want about catholicism mm-hmm. and you know, it's still catholicism and, and mm-hmm. you're still you and so you know like mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I completely agree with what you said, and I think it's a really important point when you said that, um, you know, we don't really have an ability to instantiate um, any any particular kind of uh, social technology that we might devise on, on this front. And, and I agree. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's worthwhile to look back to, like, it's already been made. That's kind of my point. Like, Catholicism seems to be this, like, kind of genius, intellectual and philosophical and spiritual um, kind of... Uh, combination uh, that already took off, already, you know, is has kind of remarkable kind of staying power and significance. And it also, when you just like look at it deeply enough, it really does start to make sense. And it's already there. And there's already, uh, you know, like uh, lots of people in it. That's a serious problem. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, but I it's, think it's not. To be honest, I think it's overplayed. Actually, it is overplayed. I, I the rates of the rate the rates of pedophilia aren't any worse than like orphan, orphanages schools. or public schools. Yeah, but you know, I think you're you're right in a certain way because the Catholics are actually they do organize things. They organize time. You know, they organize place. They organize society, like in a very careful mm-hmm. and in a very brilliant way. I mean, I think and it's already there. It's but well, it's there for the taking. We don't have to reinvent well, it. Well, I mean. I think they're going to keep it, you know, I'm not sure we're going to take it from them. I mean, but Well, join it is what I mean. Well, I, I'm telling I, you to join it, damn it. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I think what's worth thinking about, actually, is the way in which they develop the system for making for making life sacred. Right. I think in a world which has been profane to an extreme degree, it's worthwhile thinking about how they did that, how they made, you know, for example, like every day... Is is a feast day of a different saint, and you can mark time in this in this manner. And you every you know time you mark it, you think of this saint, and you have some relation thereby, something which is outside of yourself. And you know, I think compared to you know like this kind of pentagrammatological, you know, predomage kind of like you know, man is born free, but everywhere is in you know, chain stores. And like, how can one? How can one? You know, like how can one? withdraw from from this kind of you know reality which is in a way obviously like much worse yeah right well put well put what do you think should we wrap it up we've done an hour and 45 minutes yeah we don't this doesn't need to be infinite i feel like this is kind of when i personally start to my my cognitive mm-hmm. powers start to kind of decline at, a, at around this time so i'm not trying to cut you off though no. what are you guys feeling like yeah, I mean... Are you dying I, to get anything else off your chest? No, well, there was a guy who asked me a while ago about, like, the plausible deniability, like, with respect to... Um, oh, yeah. The alt-right, and I don't really have any points of view about that, to be honest, or even necessarily know what it, it means. I mean, like, the kind of idea, for example, of, let's say, like, who do you have to deny anything to in the first place? And then, you know, like, that relation, like, the construction of that relation, like... You know, I don't know. I mean, like, 
Mm. You know, I don't know. Like, uh, like yeah. it's, it seems to me like it's something else. It's like, for example, you know, it's like in the movie The Devils. You know, when they come and they say, you know, like, you know, have, have you been have you been speaking with the devil? And like, you know, you can deny that, of course. But like, the very fact that they're asking you the question in the first place is a uh, yeah, you know, an indication of something else which is going on ultimately. I mean, I know the question was directed to DC, but I'm going to answer it also with my take, which is don't worry so much about plausible deniability. Like you don't, that's not for you to think about. That's not for you to worry about. Focus on saying what's true. It's it's really that simple. And again, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna rely on Christianity there. I mean, that is like one of the defining insights, the most genius insights of of Christianity essentially, which is you don't have to worry about deniability. You don't have to worry about the strategic consequences. Just focus on saying. What is true, as far as you can see, be as radically honest as you can at all times and let the chips fall where they may. Wherever they fall, it's going to be good. That, like, that's basically what Christianity says. And I think that's essentially true. All right. all right. So right before we're getting ready to pack up, we're now being inundated with money. I do not know where we're going all to be right, able to spend groups. this. I want to actually know. I want to say something about the idea of a hate group because we were just talking about this okay. today. And, like, you know, it's interesting that the term, right? The What is a hate group? Like, what is actually hate? I mean, what is it that, you know... How do you construct a relation which is based on hate? I mean, there's like this kind of discourse of hate. People, te- you know, talking about hate. Like, you know, there are these hateful people, and yeah. apparently they have this kind of like inchoate and primordial hate, and that is what motivates them in their well, that's lives. That's what they are. They're just hate, hate filled. And I, I think to conceive of the other in that way is, to be honest, like extremely. Uh, you know, it's kind of a hate-filled yeah. vision yeah. in his own right, Definitely. to be frank. And I mean, I think that you know, you can try and understand the position of the other and you can try and understand that in a way which is rational mm-hmm. and compassionate and I think that's what you should try and do you know what I mean I, I think at some point everybody is uh, everyone gets accused it's like your turn to be accused of being the one who hates and uh, it's, it's often very upsetting to be accused of being you know a hateful person or a hate-filled person like, uh, especially when one knows it isn't true. And, uh, yeah. So I'm trying to understand the question, though. Um, so thanks for the 10 bucks, by the way. What about alt-right hate groups co-opting strategies of plausible deniability as intentions? So are they asking, like, what do we think about the problem of hate groups? So, so you're talking about, like, are they talking about, like, Richard Spencer or something like that uses, like, very careful language to never really be... Um, like demonstrably guilty of anything in particular. Is that, what is, is he that on trial question? for? I mean, who is this guy? I mean, like he's some guy who, like, you know, he, what does he do? I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get the question right. I'm trying to. Um, mm. Yeah. So the question would be like, what do we? Yeah. I mean. I think the kind of bands that this person is talking about, like Death in June, and there's been a lot of attempts. Yeah. What is that? It's a kind of neo-folk band. Oh, yeah. um, I guess one way of putting it. I guess yeah. There, there, there are lots of, I mean, artistic projects that that play around and actually use. I mean, I've done this for a long time. In fact, and you know, if you think about lie back in terms of like overconformism, like you know, playing with the symbols, precisely like the Catholic Church owns all the symbols, but you know, to play with political uh, imagery and, and symbolism, you know, and to be provocative, to you know, to be provocateurs, for example, like these are important things to do to test the limits of the political and the social. Right. In 
fact. Right. You know, to point out to people how these things work, for example. Like, how is it possible to manipulate crowds, for example? Like, these are really important things to understand. To simply dismiss something and say, oh, these, yeah, these people are filled with hate, these people are wrong. You know, like, we see this all the time in kind of debates around fascism, even in Brexit or whatever. You know, to dismiss, like, vast ways of people as just simply, like, delusional or stupid or poor or whatever, you know, or stupid because poor or poor because stupid, you know, as, like, you know, right. Trump supporters were routinely dismissed right. by liberals. And, you know, it, it's to radically, like, not understand anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to reaffirm your own stupidity, actually. Right. You know, to not understand how political mechanisms work. Right. Yeah, yeah I would also add to that I, that I think so long as a group, any group whatsoever, no matter what you really think is going on under the hood, so long as they are basically maintaining plausible deniability, like, so long as they don't actually cross some, like, if they're not actually, like, if they're not actually saying, like, you know, we should uh, commit genocide against group X or something like that. If they're not actually crossing any line, technically, that's that's beyond the pale that I consider un- un- the line. I mean, the line is... No but, no, but what I'm saying is if a group doesn't cross what I consider, like what, what you authentically consider to be the line, like no matter how sketchy they seem, if they're not actually explicitly saying something that I consider objectionable, then I... I, I'm cool with them doing their thing. Is what is my answer to the question? So, like, what, what I'm what I'm trying to respond to is the culture now is like, if you're, you know, there's this idea of like dog whistling, right? And and like, it's all people have these paranoid ideas of like coded language. So, like, you know, people are constantly like leftists are constantly saying, "Oh no, this group, yeah, they don't say anything racist, but I know that they're racist because of this symbol and this symbol." What they're really saying is they want genocide. But this like is that. A, I'm against that, obviously. But like, this is a form of paranoia. Ultimately. Yeah, definitely. No, that's what I'm saying. That's that's and what I'm saying. Yes. Also. Even construct this in the, in the you know, precincts of plausible deniability in the first place already is in a way to sort of concede too much ground because yeah. what has to, mm-hmm. one one has to yes, accept right. is yeah. is the is the ambiguity of the symbolic right. to begin exactly. with, you know, right. and it's not possible in fact to to say well, you know, behind this message there's this other message and then behind that is it because ultimately there's but no. But then you're end. a priest, you know, you're yes, a priest. Yes, you're exactly. the one that's who determines right. what the symbols mean. Exactly. That's you know, exactly who that. sets himself up as a priestly caste? You know, it's like, you know, the weakest people in a certain way who are trying to get the strength this is very Nietzschean, but you know, I mean, look, I mean, everybody should listen to everybody in a certain way, like, especially those people who, like, hold objectionable views, otherwise you'll never understand why they hold them. Right. If you simply dismiss people, if you say, I can't be friends with this person, we can't listen to them, this person should be blacklisted, this person should be denounced, as is the culture, like, absolutely right. dominant culture on the so-called left, you know, I mean, they actually behave in really authoritarian ways, right. in terms of, like, yeah, doing this kind of constant sort of, like, social death Yeah, action. We should reject the blackmail of people yeah. saying that they know what somebody means, you know, like what exactly. somebody else means and like yeah. proposing to interpret that for you and telling you that you have no right to think for yourself and telling you what you're allowed to listen to or what you're allowed to read or who you're allowed to hear. You know, I mean, Frederick Douglass said that actually in the 19th century. And mm-hmm. This is what freedom of speech is about, is about freedom to listen to whoever you want without some person coming along and telling you, oh, no, well, he's dog whistling, you know, I mean, well, Yeah, I think we're all agreed on this one. Yeah. Yeah. So a quick one from Woker Nexus. (laughs) Thanks, Woker Nexus. Uh, Based feminist wrote the Voynich manuscript. True or false? I have no idea what that is. Sure. What is it? It's like a very strange (laughs) document. It's like filled with very intriguing symbols um, and code, I guess. And it's based? Uh, What does based mean? It means like good, like not woke, (laughs) like not woke. Oh, right. Yeah, sure. 
based in red pill. is basically what it means. So yeah. You would you describe it. yourself as based in red pill, Justin? No, I would never describe myself. Never would. Describe That's the cringiest thing I could imagine <laughs> to right. describe yourself as based in red pill. No. Now, if other people want to describe me as based in red pill, I might not object, but. Um, that's a totally different story yeah. <laughs> I think we should wrap it up it's been two hours now mm-hmm. unless anyone has some final closing questions that are really good uh, feel free Spice Demiurge you're going to go eat that cake even after we told you the answer to your question no cake's so bourgeois actually the one thing that I think I've gotten from Britain well one of the things I've gotten from Britain is a, is an appreciation for cake uh, you I actually really pill. actually no they, <laughs> no they just say that they're wrong. They just, they just say that. What's up, Crip? Yeah, it's okay. You can watch back. I'm not I'm not cringing blue pill. They just like to hate. I mean, they're the ones watching my live stream, so uh, they know I'm based in red pill. Not that I would call myself. Well, we should say goodbye. Yeah. So if anyone has any really good questions and you want to get in, now's your chance. But uh, otherwise, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. So uh, I'll give you five seconds. Five. <laughs> Four. Before we uh, three. Sacrifice Before we're, I'm sacrificed. Five. <laughs> four. Three. All right. Kill the Pope? I vote no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Highly based and exquisitely red pill is the term. <laughs> uh, I want to thank everyone for coming out and hanging out last night. This is a very impromptu thing. I was very delighted to be joined by two friends live. I try not to like Thanks pressure. I try not to pressure my friends in real life to do this with me because a lot of them don't want to. So when they were really game uh, to do this, I was delighted. And uh, so thank you for hanging out with us as always. And big thanks to Nina and DC for hanging out and being being you know good sports. This was really fun. No worries. Well, well but one thing I do want to ask before we wrap it up is, uh, what did you guys think of this? How do you find it? I mean, it's nice. It's a kind of kind of it's kind of a strange experience. Yeah. It's like you know. Because we're just in a room, you know, and like these messages are kind of scrolling down the screen. And I mean, there's a kind of what else can I say? It takes some getting used to. Yeah, it's a little weird, definitely. What do you think of it? I mean, I I, I sort of have a problem with technology yeah. <laughs> being, being a pagan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so it, it's sort of deeply confusing. You're a techno pagan. Uh, no, I'm not a techno pagan. I have no. all that stuff too. Oh, that's a thing? Well, that was all like the kind of 90s cyber utopian thing. Uh, I mean, it just didn't, yeah, well, yeah. Well, it's okay. So nonetheless, though, as a pagan. Can we go and look at the stars now? Yeah, we can make up for it. We can do it like a sage sage cleansing exercise. Do you do that kind of thing? But did you enjoy it? Was it interesting and fun? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Based in (laughs) Redfield? We're going to sacrifice you now. Okay, everyone, we're going to um, go uh, chop off my head, I guess. (laughs) Uh, As always, folks, thanks for hanging out. It was a pleasure. I will... uh, be on here same time next week at the bare minimum. I might have some other jo- guests join me. I might do some other random things between now and then, but at the bare minimum, you know, I'll be back at this time next week. Um, yeah, thanks for the good questions. Very good questions. I appreciate it. Um, you contributed to the, uh, you know, keeping things at a good, interesting, stimulating level and rhythm. So <laughs> thank you for that. Very grateful. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Best-